0: Now, as we come to chapter 23, it's going to be broken down into a couple different portions. The first section that we're going to look at are our court laws, uh, how they ought to deal with one another in legal situations. Then we'll look quickly at Sabbaths and different feasts that the Lord has instituted and calls his people to observe. And then lastly, uh, this promise of land that he has given them, this place he's prepared for them. So we start in verse one looking at court laws. We're going to try to move fairly quickly through this, so uh, stick with me as we uh, look at this first section. We read in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to uh, to be a malicious witness. So this is the first commandment that has to do with uh, this legal situation, but it also has implications to our day-to-day life. This, of course, uh, it means exactly what it says, but it also means a little bit more than this. The first thing that we see is, you shall not spread a false report. And then the second part is, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Now these commands are rooted in the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. These are rooted in God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. And so we find uh this elaboration on that and how they ought to act. You shall not bear or you shall not spread a false report. Now, what does this mean? Because this could mean a, a number of different things. Uh it could it could uh mean just something that is untrue factually like don't give out false facts uh, That that's one of the meanings it also has a general uh, prohibiting of any sort of gossip or speculation and try to kind of fill in the facts with your own thoughts uh, this is kind of the situation where people might tell their side of the story but they leave out some of the details to kind of color it in the angle that they want it to be seen in uh, and and you you guys kind of know this situation. Sometimes uh, we take things out of context. We hear things, we take things out of context, and the way that we communicate them back uh, is to communicate only the details that we want. If you've been on the internet lately, like the internet is full of these things. There's these little uh, clickbait articles that have like this like really uh, preposterous headline that's meant to get you to click it, and then it's like some article on some sketchy website that's, like, written, like, some something ripped completely out of context. You know, like, and it's usually, like, one of our leaders wants to, like, completely, like, uh, initiate genocide on this one sort of people, and it's starting this weekend. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like... That, that did not, you know, like maybe like you could have pulled that out, but this is exactly the type of thing. God is prohibiting clickbait. No clickbait. You can't do that. Don't start clickbait websites. Uh, he's saying here, the way that you listen should be to hear the truth. And the way that you communicate should be to communicate the truth. You cannot rely on... Uh, you can't be selective in the way that you decide to communicate. You can't be selective to manipulate other people. Now, a lot of times, we, we do this, but in an unconscious manner. It's like we, we want to hear only the things that, we, that solidify our opinion about somebody or something. If you really don't like something or enjoy something and someone else mentions it, you you really grab on to that that piece of information that someone shared. And and our view and the way that we communicate would really begin to be tainted by self-interest. And so it's important that we communicate truthfully because false reports are super destructive. They get a lead out on the truth and then they're impossible to control once they're gone. You cannot reel them back in. You can't be like, oh, sorry, because it's like people will keep sharing that. It will get a head start. And these things, even if it is a false, uh, a false statement, a false report that's brought forth, these things tend to uh, dam- damage relationships in a huge way. So if those things do get out, they also are going to cause issues with those people who they affect. Now, how do we avoid spreading these things? Well, one, one of them is just don't listen to false reports in the first place. If someone's trying to share information with you about somebody else, if it's none of your business, just be like, I don't need to know that. Don't tell me that. I don't need to hear your gossip, your information that you're trying to come alongside and, and give this to me. What is the, the motive, the benefit, the purpose of them sharing that with you? Maybe to have a little bit of gossip for you to identify with their situation and really find an ally there. We need to be careful not to believe every single thing we hear. And especially that we should have discernment with people who are sharing things out of anger, who feel like they have uh, frustration in a specific issue or with a specific person. You know, one of the things that... Um, that we have to deal with as pastors is people coming from other churches that they didn't like something that happened, so they left their church, and then they want to come tell me all about it. So I just like have to be like, you should go tell them, because that's not, you're not here to complain with me and me to be like, oh man, that was really unfair, yeah, that was totally awful. The way that the Bible says we should deal with it is you should go to your brother and if you have a problem, they should clear it up there and you should make this reconciliation happen. But I don't want to let those things into our house and to have this gossip running wild and people slandering other people. We're not doing that. That's not God's character. So we have to be on guard against that. Only say the things, and this is like maybe the the way that you govern this. In the New Testament, we're told we should speak things for the edification of others. That means not only that you shouldn't say things that are damaging to others, things that are false, things that are uh, untrue completely, it's not just that you shouldn't say those, you also just shouldn't have mindless babbling. The things that you communicate should really be for the benefit of others, Which, if you're a guy, this is awesome, because guys don't really like to talk very much anyways. So it's basically like, I'm just going to be quiet until I have something really good to say, and then I'll say it then. But other than that, I'm off the hook. You know, that's the way that a lot of guys work. I'm kind of one of those. Like, I don't really use a lot of wasted words. I'm just going to be quiet and wait. And then if I actually have something and I've thought, and I overthink things, you know, truthfully, I get way too into it. However, we should really think about the things that we're saying and saying, what is the benefit of me communicating this? What is my actual inner motive? What, what is the purpose of me wanting to open my mouth and declare something to somebody or share something with somebody? Now, it's not that uh, the, the, the purpose really should be for God's glory, to build other people up. And that doesn't mean, you know, sometimes you got to kind of just share facts, things about, hey, like, here's how this thing I bought just works. like, If you're sharing it for the point of mainly talking about like that you're bankrolling and you bought something, that's maybe not a good thing. But if you're like, hey, like this thing could be really helpful to this other person and I feel like they should know about it. You know, there's ways that the Lord's going to give you discernment in the situation. We we can talk about those at community group. Now, second part that that we find here is you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So the wicked man is... Somebody who is guilty. This is what it's saying here. So this is what it means uh, to be a malicious witness. That you. It's clear that this is a person who is guilty of this crime. And this is someone who's trying to get a witness to work together with them to get them acquitted. To get this witness to deliberately lie in court. Have them deliver false testimony. Uh, and so the guilty would be declared innocent. This is really what's happening here. He says, you shouldn't join hands with this type of people. All right, we're going to speed up now. Verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Now, in this case, the person who is the witness, they are wanting to do the right thing. They're, they're thinking, okay, here's what, here's what I've witnessed, the, the opinion that I have formed in my mind. But they're influenced by the gossip in the marketplace. They're influenced by everybody weighing in on this case. Oh, well, I, can you even believe that? That this person did this. And it was clear that they found this, uh, you know, th- this amount of evidence. And, and so they're swayed by this public opinion. They're pushed into uh, giving this false testimony ...because the pressure is great. Now the Bible commands us only to say what is true... Even if, ...even if we know it's going to be unpopular... ...and even if we know that it's not a welcome statement. We are people of the truth. Now, it's clear, we know from, from this uh, society... ...for you and I, the courtroom is not going to be the only place... ...where we need this information... You know, some of us will perhaps be uh, a part of a trial someday. However, we feel this peer pressure in daily life to do what public opinion wants us to do, to follow the majority rule. But the Bible tells us that we ought to only say what is true. The majority is not always right. We need to follow Christ first, even if that means going against what everybody else is doing. Don't be, uh, don't be um, tempted to fall in with everybody and to say what people just want to hear, giving them what they really want to know. Oh yeah, align yourself with us, be like us. When you do that, when you make those small compromises, it leads to larger compromises in your life. You'll see the theme of this as we get towards the end. Now, we're told, verse 3, you, sh- you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So here is some instruction to speak truthfully and not just side with the poor because they're poor. So God's law puts into place the poor do not get the benefit of having innocence or having things go easy on them if they are indeed guilty. You can't just be like, oh, well, they're poor and they can't handle it, so they're off the hook. That's not what God's law says. He says the poor have to stand in response to that. You can't be partial to them just because they're poor. Now, if there's evidence and they can be acquitted, then there's something that the Lord can weigh in on. However, the point is that the truth will win out in this situation. Now, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So here God calls his people to show grace toward your enemies. Maybe these are the people that you're in court against. Maybe these are the people... Uh, that are your neighbors that you've been at war with, the Lord acknowledges that people are not going to live in this really peaceful situation in society. And sometimes you're going to rub each other the wrong way and you're going to end up not liking each other. But the Lord doesn't say, well, you should make sure that they're punished. He calls his people to show grace toward their enemies. Because the way that we usually deal with our enemies is we treat them harshly. And we try to wound our enemies. And we try to hurt the people who stand against us. But the Lord says, that's not how I work. My people do not operate in that way. He says we should help our enemies. Look at how he describes this. He says, if you meet your enemy's ox... Or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you're walking around and you see something that belongs to your enemy and it's gone and it's walking out the, uh, you know, there are animals walking around and you see it and you're like, oh, I know who that is. You shouldn't just let it go because it would be easy to be like, ah, fool, donkey's loose, it's getting out of here, it's going to get eaten by some bear out in the wilderness and like, peace. The Lord says, no, you need to go, it's, it's on you to go and find that animal, and bring him back and secure it and bring it back to your enemy. He says further, if you see the donkey fallen over and he's got this animal loaded up, your enemy has this a- animal loaded up, coming back from the market maybe, and it's fallen over, and he's trying to get it up. You, it's your responsibility to go to him and help him get that donkey back up and to start moving uh, into, to moving in the direction towards restoring the animal and bringing the animal back to uh, the house with him. Now, we should heed these words in Proverbs chapter 24, we're told, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Because this is really like, let's just be realistic. Like this is the position of our heart when people who we don't like blow it. You're like, ah, you're just like dancing around, so excited, like they lost, they got destroyed, they didn't get the job, they failed, they didn't get that promotion. Whatever it is, if, if you're excited about someone not uh, losing out and someone just having things difficult, that person is probably your enemy. Because you think like, oh, I don't really have any enemies. You do, you have some. Now, what God's trying to do here is he's trying to get his people to enter into a relationship with their enemies because it's super hard to hold a grudge at the same time as you're holding on to your enemy's donkey. You're like having to do this and you're going through the motions and you're pulling this donkey along and the donkey's just like all looking all weird and dumb as you're walking them. Like, it's super hard to be upset at that. And then even if you're helping your enemy and this uh, donkey has fallen over and you're helping him get it up, it's hard for your enemy to be like, I wish this guy wasn't helping me right now. Like, I really hate him. It's like, you're thankful for any help. You're trying to get this thing up. The Lord is trying to bring these people together. There are people in your life currently or in the past who have mistreated you. There are people uh, who kind of poke at you at work, at school. People that you try to avoid, perhaps. These are the people who are your enemies and you need to love them. Jesus calls us to love his enemies in Matthew chapter five, verse 43. He says, you've heard it was uh, heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So Jesus follows this up and he says, you can't love, you can't hate your enemies. You have to love your enemies. And when you do that, you are going to be the offspring of your father in heaven. Now, now what does he mean by that? Well, this is the kind of love that we give because this is the kind of love that God gives. This is the kind of love that we have been given. It's the love that Jesus showed us when when he died on the cross. In Romans chapter five, verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? He's saying there, God, he, he, God saved us when we were in opposition to him. And so God's people should act like God. When the enemies are down, when they are in opposition, God's people go mirroring his character, his image, and we go to them showing them love, even in that And when we do that, we can say, this is what our God is like. He did this for us. He rescued and saved us. When I was his enemy and I was cursing him and I was standing against him, he showed that same love to me at the cross. What God is doing here is he's making a bridge for his people to communicate the gospel into a world that is full of animosity, that is full of this sinful relationship of enemies. The Lord brings, he, he makes a way to bring those people near By using his people as an example. Verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So these laws are aimed at judges. So the first kind of uh, section that we saw is you shouldn't show partiality to the poor. Don't show partiality. Don't give the poor uh, a good, a positive verdict just because they're poor. But now we find some laws for judges. You shall not pervert justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So the judges, they have a responsibility to make sure that poor people get a fair trial. It's up to them to protect the powerless, to make sure that they get proper representation, that they get a fair shake. Because it's the poor who are taken advantage of. Now God prevents his people, the nation, and the judges from favoring the rich. But he also prevents the poor from being favored because of their circumstances uh, financially of just being poor. The poor aren't always right and the rich aren't always wrong. We find follow-up law in Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So the Lord says their financial status shouldn't have anything to do with the truth. The truth should win out. Now verse 7. Keep far from a false charge. And do not kill the innocent. And righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. So we find here. Don't go along with false charges. No fixed trials is what he's saying. Can't, can't have this. Do not condemn a man they know to be innocent. Don't kill off someone who is innocent. Fix it up. So that way they're going to pay the price. He says, don't assist in making the innocent to be guilty in any way. Keep far from a false charge. Verse 8, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So bribery is always uh, something that would bring corruption to true justice. It is the this thought that if someone's being offered Money, resources, power, position. these things corrupt justice. And this is rooted in God's character again. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, we read, "For the Lord, your God is God of God's and Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God." I, I love that first intro section. It's just like so like just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Lord, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. It's so good. And then he says, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He doesn't show favoritism. You can't sway his opinion. You can't pay him off. You don't have anything that he wants. You you can't get something out of him. It's his justice, his righteousness that will rule forth. And this is why he says in verse 7, I will not acquit the wicked. You might acquit them, but I'm not. He's reminding them, not only uh, not only will somebody who is made innocent to be shown guilty, like I see that, but he says, I see also what you're doing. And I will not acquit the wicked, the guilty. You see, what God's doing there is he's, he's telling his people that although true justice might not happen, Because of the human error and the way that society is sometimes set up. Although these things will not happen, he sees and he knows. And all things will be made right on the last day when he judges in truth. He will make all things right. Nothing will slip by him. His justice is perfect. Now we read in verse 9, You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So here again we have instructions for the courts to treat foreigners with respect, not to take advantage of them. Don't be unjust with them. Now this again is rooted in their experience in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and so he says, you guys know what it was like to be foreigners. Don't, don't treat other people how you were treated. God Is bringing all foreigners together to make his own new people of all nations, peoples, tribes, tongues. He brings them all together and they all stand as made in the image of God and he doesn't treat them with partiality in any way. And so his people should not treat them uh, in this way either. Now in verse 10, we move down into instructions for some Sabbath, uh, for the Sabbath and for some festivals. Verse 10, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So they were supposed to let the fields rest every seventh year. There's a cycle. You were supposed to work for years one through six. And harvest, uh, you know, prepare your land, plant seeds, uh, you want to irrigate and make sure everything's taken care of, you harvest your, your uh, produce, I guess, <laughs> harvest your produce, you know, prune them, prepare for the next season, be ready. You do this for six years. But on the seventh year, you would let this land rest. In the seventh year, you would do no work in this capacity. You would not go out and prepare your field. You would not plant seed. You would not go again and harvest. You would not go and uh, prune and prepare the land for the following year. Now, this, as we look at it now, is super good agricultural practice. Like you're supposed to let the uh, nitrates in the soil read, you know, kind of get healthy again. And so you want to move your crops around. Like the soil can only be good for so long there before it's not going to, before it needs to be refreshed and, and have, you know, I mean, if you think about it in the seventh year, you have these animals coming in and eating and they're just like having, they're like manure all over the field and it's getting all refreshed. And then the next year you come back and it's like all plush and everything's good for growing again. So there's an agricultural insight into how this works. But that was a byproduct. This wasn't even the purpose of the command. He didn't give them that information. So it was like just. And so you should do this. So that way your harvest is plentiful. In the following year. That's not the purpose of it. That was something that God did. To bless his people. And as they operated in obedience to him. He worked out the natural cycle of things. To bless them. But the Sabbath was for the people. And the animals who depended upon the land for food. So in the seventh year. The orchards, the fields, the vineyards were all left to grow on their own. They were all left unpruned, unguarded, unharvested. And so the poor and the animals could come in and get what they needed. They could come in and unhindered, take as much as they wanted, and be fed. Now, verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant, woman, and the alien may be refreshed. So here again, we find instructions just quickly for uh, the Sabbath day. Here's a, This is a quick rehashing of it. This again means to cease work. And this is a day of rest, like the Sabbath year, for both man and for animals. We're told here that it's all classes of people. You, your ox, your donkey, the son of your servant woman. So this is like all the way down to the servant woman and the son of your servant woman. The... Uh, And the alien, sojourner, foreigner, this person who is in the land would also have a day of rest from work. Now, what God's doing here is guaranteeing that everyone's going to get a day off every week. One day off. You get one day off at least. And what he's doing here is he's also showing us a pattern for creation care. Look, he says we should here show kindness to animals. We shouldn't overwork them. We should care for them. They can work hard. They also need a day of rest. And caring for creation is one of the ways that we glorify God. We take care of plants. We take care of animals. It's a huge part of being a, a Christian. Because these things are created by God. It's our job to maintain them. To be those gardeners that God had created Adam to be. To manage the garden. And so... We continue in this. Now, the thing that we want to be careful is that we don't mistake the creation for the creator. Animals are not more important than people. God sets forth in his word a created order, a divine order, and he sets people above animals. And so while we should care for them and tend to them, they are not on the same level as people. Same thing with uh, the plants and the environment. It's not, it's below people in God's created order. We're to steward over these things, but we don't want to get them mixed up and treat them as creation rather, or creator rather than creation. Keep them in their place. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So here we have this verse that kind of is wrapping up this conclusion uh, here. And what God is saying here, in that first section, pay attention to all that I have said to you. What he's highlighting in the fact here, or what he's highlighting is that he's not asking his people to only obey some of the laws. Or some of the things that might come really easy to them. He's saying you need to obey all of them. Partial obedience is not okay. God calls his people to obey all of them. We don't get the freedom to choose which laws we like and which ones we don't. He rightfully demands our total obedience. And so now we get into the feast that God ordains for his people. Verse 14, three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. So this was the fulfillment of God's purpose for the Exodus. If you remember, He went, uh, Moses went to Pharaoh and he said... I want, God says, let my people go so that they might go and hold a feast to me in the wilderness, that they might worship me in the wilderness. So these are the institutions of these feasts. Now, we've looked at one of these already, but there are uh, three feasts. Feast of unleavened bread, the feast of harvest, and the feast of ingathering. Uh, and these things, we're told in verse 14, were to happen three times a year. So you know God is super into feasts and feasts. Feasts sound like a great time. So I don't know why you wouldn't be in feasts. But this sounds like a wonderful time. Let's let's look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread quickly. Verse 15. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. So, we looked already at the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. I'm not going to like rehash the whole thing. I'm going to give you a summary. Here's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is. It celebrated the Exodus. On the night that Pharaoh finally gave in in obedience to God and said, Hey, the people can go free. Get everybody out of here. You can take your animals, your kids. Everything in the, And the children of Israel plundered the Egyptians. They were given all sorts of gold and silver. They left the land. On that night, they were told to prepare bread without leaven in it. And this would be because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They were going to get out of there. And they didn't know that. But the Lord told them, gave them these instructions. And so they had to take this bread in such a, they didn't have they had to leave in such a hurry they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise but they needed something to eat on their first uh, leg of the journey out of Egypt and so they made this bread without yeast in it unleavened bread and it was really quick to cook it was done and so when they went out they took this bread with them and they ate this on the first leg of their journey now when the, god calls them to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread, what he's really doing here is to remember God's saving work in their history. In all that he has done for them, he's saying, when you do this, what you're really doing, you're enjoying yourself, you're having a good time, but you also are remembering this saving work that I have accomplished on your behalf. Now, we do this as we come to the table as we look over at the communion elements, as we come here, we celebrate that finished work in history on our behalf. Christ's work at the cross. This is our table. We come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this feast, at looking at the bread that was made with that similar material, the matzah, and uh, you know, the fruit of the vine. These are the things that we do to look back at the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Now, in verse 16, we find instructions for the feast of harvest. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So, two feasts here. First, the feast of harvest. This feast is integrated with the the agricultural season and so, when the grain was ready for harvest, the Israelites would go out and they would take this first uh, little bit of wheat and they would wave it before the Lord in celebration, acknowledging that the whole harvest has come from him. If you want more info on this, Leviticus chapter twenty nine or twenty three excuse me, you can look at all the details for the Feast of harvest and then after seven weeks, they would bring an offering to the Lord, and then the main thing that they would offer was bread. this would represent the fullness of the harvest. And they would make sacrifices uh, um, that were kind of prescribed according to the law. As I said, Leviticus chapter 23. You can also find details uh, in Numbers 28. And so they would gather for public worship and they would praise God as their provider, thank Him for the bread that He had provided for them. That was at the beginning of harvest. Now, the feast of ingathering happened after the harvest was completed. After every shock of wheat was collected, after every olive was pressed, after every grape had been harvested, they would celebrate the feast of ingathering for a week. Like, that sounds like a wonderful time, just have a week-long feast party. It was this awesome time. And what they would do in this feast is they, would, they were told to construct these portable tents. And they called them, uh, depending upon where you're looking, they're called booths or tabernacles, but it's basically like these portable tents. And they were told to live in these during the feast week. Now, this action echoed back to God's saving work in the Exodus once again. After their escape from Egypt, the Israelites, they went out into the wilderness, and then they lived in tents. And so what this is doing is it's connecting these Future generations to the past generations, recognizing where they came from and how faithful God had been to his people. And so they would have this great celebration. And at this time of year, if you look back at verse 15, on the institution of these three feasts, they're told, none shall appear before me empty handed. They were told as a celebration of what God has given, they were to come and to bring their tithes to the Lord. Now, most people would bring their feasts, or excuse me, their tithes. Most people would bring their tithes to the Lord at the Feast of Ingathering. This was the best time of year they considered for tithing. Because this was when God's people had the greatest amount of goods, the greatest amount of produce, the greatest amount of resources, and they could give a larger amount back to him. If it was at the beginning of the season, they didn't really have very much to give. It was kind of like, uh, I got like this little bit. There you go. But they would wait to the feast of ingathering to give a plentiful amount, in abundance, recognizing that these things all came from the Lord. They wanted to give back a larger amount to him. You see, this is the way that it scaled. It wasn't that they had more, so then they gave the same amount. The people who had the most gave more. The people who had a lot gave a lot. We're told, uh, we're given a little bit of guidance for these instructions for how they ought to tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Verse 17. Every man shall give as he is able. You notice there, he doesn't set like an amount. He doesn't say like, "Hey, you, like you gotta like really just stretch yourself, like and really go into debt and have like these big issues." That's not what he's saying here. He says, "Every man shall give as he is able, whatever you're able to do." Now we find this, uh, we find this instruction married together in the New Testament, where Paul says that we should give what we've decided in our heart cheerfully. Not you're like, oh, "I really don't want to do that," but it's your Delight your response like I want to worship the Lord with what he has given me and respond back to him faithfully providing uh, for his church giving to him in this same way. So we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 16 every man shall give as he is able but then the other guideline there is according to the blessing the Lord your God that he has given you. So you shouldn't give more uh, more than you can give. But if you have a lot, you should give a lot. It should, it should scale according to how much you have. So there's not one set amount, but it's scaling to what you have. And then with the New Testament instruction married together, it's what you've decided in your heart cheerfully. Now, as a pattern for this, the way that we want to think about giving is the way that God thinks about Giving. Not just in keeping the rules here, but in what he has given to us through his own son. So we give in that same manner. And so if you're really kind of struggling with like, how should we give? How much should I give? What should I give? I don't really know. You should think about it like in in response to how can I be most like God's character in my response? And let the Holy Spirit guide you there in, in what that looks like for you. The Lord will give you wisdom. And if you connect it to, if you think about it as God's, um, a response to who God is, but also as an act of worship, the Lord will give you that, that wisdom and insight. All right. Now, after listing the annual festivals, God gives important instructions about how they're to be observed. Verse 17. Three times a year. All your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. So the Bible says here that the men uh, are to appear before the Lord. Now, it only mentions the men here because they are the spiritual uh, heads of their household. But elsewhere uh, in scripture we find that it's clear, we look at the other um, books, that women and children were also included. They also were to appear. It wasn't like only guys can roll out to this. The whole family, whole family would go out. Now, they would go to this, make these journeys to uh, the feasts. And he says their worship and obedience to the Lord was only to be committed to the God of Israel, no other gods. Now, we're also told, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. Like, these are super weird instructions, so, like, what, what are we supposed to do with that? Why can't we have, like, a sacrifice that includes, you know, leaven? Well, as we've seen in Scripture, leaven or yeast is a symbol of this. Growth of sin, spiritual corruption, and so keeping it away from the symbol uh, of this sacrifice of this cleansing is a way of showing separation from sin. Now, the second part that we find is that we shouldn't let the fat of my feast remain until morning. Now, that's just like kind of a weird, weird one. We'll recognize that together. We don't. Nobody really wants to eat like you know just a huge hunk of fat because it's. Super, super health, unhealthy. But in the ancient world, uh, this was like the prime cut. Like you wanted to eat, apparently, like all the fat. <laughs> it's like the juiciest part. It tastes the best, right? When you have like bacon, it's just there. I guess the bacon's out for them. <laughs> but, it's the, but it's good. It's just gives it just gives it all that good flavoring. The temptation here, as they offered this sacrifice... Would have been to leave some fat there on the altar, you know, as they were burning this as they were supposed to. Maybe they didn't push that coal in as far as they should have. And then they come back in the morning, oh, there's a little bit of fat there. I guess I'm just going to eat that up. What is being said here is you shouldn't have this motive to, to keep things back from the Lord. He's demanding the entirety of the best parts and all things should be surrendered to him. Right? This is the, we deal with the, kind of the same temptation in our life as believers. We say, like, oh Lord, we want to know you, we want to serve you, we want to walk with you, but at the same time, like we're holding some things back. I want to serve you, but I don't want to like have to do it like not on Sunday from 10 to noon. Like Any time else is fine. Or like, oh, only that time, but no other time. And the Lord's saying, like, no, your entire week is mine. You, everything that you have belongs to me. We're tempted to hold back some of that fat, to not offer everything to the Lord. But God demands our entirety. Now, verse 19, the best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So here we find that they should bring the First bit, the abundance of their produce to offer to the Lord. This is kind of a follow-up on what we talked about earlier. And then we find, you shall not boil young goats in its mother's milk. So, two things to be said about this here. This isn't just a dietary restriction. This is not what's happening here. Uh, this is a uh, statement that's rooted in purpose of God giving life and uh, his character, The source of life should never become the cause of its death. So this uh, young goat, you know, shouldn't be boiled by the life-giving force that's supposed to sustain it, its mother's milk. It shouldn't be... It's supposed to be nourished by it, not boiled by its mother's milk. One commentator, uh, this ancient Jewish scholar Philo, he said, God considered it grossly improper that the substance which fed the living animal should be used to season and flavor the same after its death. Now, that's one of the reasons. This is rooted in God's moral character. He's wanting to ensure that the life-giving substances and the mother is not destroying the, the children. But more than this, it's rooted in the surrounding nations. Boiling a young goat in its mother's milk was a ritual part of Canaanite worship. This is the nation that they're about to encounter as they make their way to the promised land. And so this was a command that they were given to guard them against falling into worshiping alongside uh, the pagan nations. And so when they celebrated these harvests, they weren't allowed to uh, interact with these other nations and be like, hey, let me show you this sweet thing that we do. Like God said, nope, that's not happening. So he gives them this line of instruction, which seems a bit odd to us, but makes a lot of sense to them. Uh, verse 20, conquest of Canaan. The Lord promises to deliver to them some land, the promised land of which he told them he would rescue them from Egypt and deliver them to. Read with me, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So here we find the mention of this angel in the book of Exodus. And the job of the angel is to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. So the job of the angel is to go before them, to make way, to assist in their uh, deliverance from the land of Egypt to the promised land. Now, what's this about? This could have been a regular old angel. Uh, This could have been someone that God had commanded to go and to lead his people. But there is good evidence, and many scholars believe that this is a Christophany. Now, what this means is this is a pre-incarnate Christ, an appearance of pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, that this is actually Jesus who is leading his people, uh, the children of Israel, into the promised land. Uh, let, me, let me give you some, some of this evidence as we go through. There's pretty, pretty great evidence for this. Verse 21, the Lord, tells, the Lord tells his people to pay careful attention to him and to obey his voice. The Lord doesn't tell, doesn't direct attention away from Him ever. He, the only time He does that, if it's, uh, you know, for His glory and it's rooted in His character and His nature, and so He willingly deflects attention off of Him and says, "You should listen to this, this angel." Now, this is let me, let me be clear here: this person is described as an angel, but this is not falling in with the other doctrines uh, from other religions that would claim that Jesus Christ is. An angel. He was a created being. This is uh, Jesus appearing as an angel to these people or is described as an angel. The word angel in uh, the Old Testament simply means messenger. So it's not like the way that we would think about it. Uh, Jesus, in fact, was a messenger and he's bringing this message from God and he's going to accomplish this work on his behalf. And so please don't get this confused. We're not making uh, claims that. Um, He is a created being, but he is indeed God. Now, we're told that they are to obey him. They are to listen to him. We're also told that he will not pardon your transgression if you do not. He has the power to forgive or to not forgive sin. In Mark chapter 2, verse 7, we're given this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? But he's given the power to make these judgments, to not pardon sin, or to pardon sin. Lastly, we see that his name. God says, "My name is in him." He gives this messenger his divine name, and so I believe. I think that this. I'm I'm, I'm with the commentators. I believe that this uh, is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. He is showing up here, which is radical. Like I wish I could have seen that. It's so good. Uh, Jesus rolling in and leading these people. Verse 22, he says, but if, you, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So the angel shows that the victory belongs to the Lord. If you obey him, he's going to go forth and he's going to uh, deal with these enemies and these adversaries. He's going to fight for you. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, And I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days." So when God brings his people out of the land of Egypt, he promises to lead them to the promised land. And this means driving out these other people who live there. Now, this was the special uh, and purposed responsibility of this angel that goes before Israel. It's his job to go and make this happen. And God warns them to stay away from the pagan nations. They are to avoid these pagan gods, not to uh, fall in with them. And take on these pagan practices but if they obey god god's going to bless them he's going to protect them now verse 27 i will send my terror before you and will throw you into uh throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and i will make all enemies turn their backs to you and i will set send hornets before you which shall drive out the hivites the canaanites and the hittites before you so again we're told god will have the victory He's going to be the one doing the conquering. We're told he's going to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites. Now, we're told he's going to do this by sending his terror before you and throwing them into confusion. We already saw this in the Red Sea. There, as as Pharaoh and the army were going in into the Red Sea, all of a sudden, they're thrown into confusion. They have no clue what's happening, and they can't get out. The Lord, I don't know what that looks like and how the Lord's doing that, but some, something's happening here. They're going to be overcome with terror, with dread. The second thing that we see in verse 28 is that he's going to send hornets before you, which that sounds awful if that's like really what it is, like actual hornets. Uh, It might totally refer to this crazy plague of stinging and and like insects that's going to fly and just, just make life miserable for these armies that are coming against the children of Israel. But it also could refer to, uh, and scholars also think that this could be a possibility, uh, it could refer to the Egyptian armies coming to help out and fight on behalf. I mean, they don't know that they're fighting on behalf of Israel, but making this attack. Because Pharaoh, uh, one of the symbols of Pharaoh was this hornet, one of his, his royal symbols. And so it was the, there was a thought that this nation might be sent out to do the battle on their behalf. Either way... The end result is that they have victory. They move through these lands. Now, verse 29, here's here's where it kind of gets a little bit interesting. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So here's the deal. They're promised this land. They're given this land. There's all these nations. But the Lord tells them, you're going to have a methodical victory. It's going to come a little bit by a little bit. There's not going to be a one year like, yeah, you're in control of everything. But this is going to be a complete but gradual victory. Now, no doubt the Israelites just wanted to come in right away and conquer and be like, look at all this space. This is awesome. We have everything. That's not God's plan. God knew that they would not be able to handle a territory that large. They didn't have the infrastructure to support the land. He didn't want the land, he tells us, to become desolate. He didn't want the wild beasts to multiply against them to take over. And so in his wisdom, God uses Israel's enemies as stewards of the land to tend the land to keep the wild animals away until they're ready to come in and take over that land. He had them prepare it for Israel. Now, the land is so big, they don't even possess the entire land that God promises to them until King Solomon's reign, which is like centuries later. Like, that's how long it takes. So the, God was really clear about this. Like, you're not going to get it all in one year. It took hundreds of years for this to be completely possessed. Now, this is the way that God works similarly in our lives. He accomplishes His work in our lives Little by little. And we want them to do it all at once. We want them to do that thing we're asking them to do. Like, do this now. I'm ready. Go. Boom. Because we're the culture, the society of short attention spans where things are on demand. And you can click a, a a button and, like, someone brings a pizza to your house and you don't have to do anything else. Like, that's the culture we live in. That's the society that we're in. You, like, push random buttons around your house and stuff just shows up. Like, And sometimes it shows up like in 30 minutes. It's so weird. There's there's no patience. There's no waiting on the Lord. But here God puts these things in place in our lives. Teaching us to depend on him. To train us. To look to him. Step by step we have to keep looking to him. Depending upon his grace. His power. And so the process of sanctification. Of becoming like God. Is long. But eventually we will Reach the end. Be glorified with Christ. Lastly, we end in verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God tells them, don't compromise. While you're waiting for God to win, while you're waiting for God to work in your life, you have to do everything that you can do to separate yourself from sin. And he says, don't make a treaty with them. There's no neutral place. There's not a place where you can have, hey, like, we have an agreement, like, I'm not going to bother you, you don't bother me. That's not what he says. He says, there's no, there's no peace, peace treaty that can be made here. Because it would be tempting to try to live in coexistence. God told them overthrow them and break the, their pillars in pieces. Just avoid temptation completely. Smash their idols to the ground. Don't save anything. These things were anchored uh, in, God tells them, don't make a covenant with them. These covenants would be anchored in their pagan worship. Like, hey, we're going to make a peace treaty. So let's come together and we'll have this, When you worship your God and I'll worship, we'll worship our God and we'll do this joint ceremony. God's like, nope, that's not happening. Overthrow them, break their idols, done. And he knows if you don't, their gods will be a snare to you, a trap. Now, this is the very uh, way that sin operates, It is a snare that will trap you. You have to destroy it. You cannot brush it away. You cannot just be like, oh, that's gone. It is like a weed. You have to pull it up at the root. You can't just mow over it. You can't just cut off the top. It will keep growing back. You have to get it at the root. It's only Christ's work, his blood, that is able to destroy sin. And so in order for us to live in victory over sin, we have to be connected to the one who can destroy sin. We have to be connected to Christ. You will not do it on your own. You cannot do it just simply by following a formula. You have to do it little by little, depending upon Christ. He will rescue and save you. It's what he's done for his people throughout history. It's what he does for us now. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that you have shown us your kindness. We're thankful that you have given us your own son. Lord, even when we were your enemies, even when we stood against you. Lord, you offered your life freely to us. And so, Lord, we want to respond to you now in thanksgiving in worship and praise. Pray that you would help us to respond to the work of your Holy Spirit as we look at this passage this morning. Pray that it finds good soil, soft, rich soil, ready to bear fruit. Change us and transform us or make us more like you. We can't wait to see you face to face. We love you. Amen.